Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast is me. I am my own guest today. I've been really humbled by all the feedback that I get from my listeners, and I really just want to say how much I appreciate everybody who listens and the feedback. I like it all. Um, And side note, if you do listen, I'd love for you to follow me on social media, Twitter, on at Reality of Real, at Reality of Real. Spread the word to your friends and anyone you know inside, outside the business. seems to get listeners from all types of people, which makes me really happy. So I've been hearing from lots of you, actually, for a while now that you want to know more about me and my background. I obviously like asking the questions more than answering them. But when my friend and colleague Tim Duffy offered to turn the tables and interview me, I thought it could be fun for my 20th episode. So here we go. So hi. Hi. Great to see you this morning. (laughs) I know. As opposed to every other day, I see you. Are you nervous? I'm a little nervous. Why are you nervous? I ask the questions, man. This is this is weird. I am very comfortable asking the questions. I always have been. So this is, and I'm look. I'm a talker. Obviously, you know that. But I, I get uncomfortable talking about myself. I guess. Well, I'm deeply honored to be the person that is asking the questions today. We've re- reversed roles. Last time I was here with my twin brother Mike, I was sitting over there, and you were sitting in this seat, and uh, I, you know we. You have been a person that has uh, I've I've known your name for a really long time, and then um, we are our paths crossed at uh, Ginza at Ginza Sushi uh, just outside of Philadelphia a couple of years back, and you've been a huge part of my life over the past couple Aww. of years, in particular over the past you know half a year to to year yeah. as we've partnered on a project that we're not going to talk about necessarily <laughs> today because it's top secret top secret you know your reputation precedes you uh oh um, <laughs> uh, you are known as a, a kind and smart executive um everybody knows your name you're kind of the norm of the uh <laughs> the unscripted business uh um who's the sam malone uh, who would, who's the Sam Malone? Maybe it's uh, Mike Duffy, my twin totally. brother. Oh, my God. Nailed it. He's totally the He's Sam Malone. He's so Sam Malone. I mean, in every way. So um, I, I just, I, I love your experience. You've, you've had a career that has spanned both coasts. Um, your knowledge of uh, the unscripted industry, but um, the, the entertainment industry at large um, as well runs very deep. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, step into our business and they, they're kind of, they're coming from all these different worlds, but they're, they're posers. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're faking it till they make it. But you're somebody that, um, when I talk to you, every time I've talked to you, I've always felt like you have this deep well of knowledge about the industry at large, um, about storytelling, about how to sell television shows, about how to produce television shows. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, um, let's quickly talk about the podcast itself. How many episodes have you done? Um, by the way, I think all of what you just said was you telling me I'm old, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- I might be older than you. But no, no, we won't even, we'll okay. take that off mic. You're not. I think I know that for a fact. Okay, I'm got it. starting to get depressing because, like, very few people are. But, you know, the Botox keeps me young. You look fantastic. Oh, thank you, darling. Um, no Botox, for the record. Uh, not yet. Um, the podcast is, so this is going to be, this podcast will be my 20th episode. That's why I kind of did it as the 20th. So I started in April. I really fell into it. Um, I, my, my sister made a funny joke when I told her I was doing it. She said, oh, so you're doing what we used to do, like in your room when we were eight and, you know, 14. Um, we, I literally would take our tape recorder and I would interview her and she would always be struggling with anorexia for some reason. <laughs> and I would just ask her these questions and we would just end up laughing really hard. And I mean, I don't know if those tapes exist anymore, but I was never the subject. I was always the interviewer and I always enjoyed it. So when uh, cut to very many years later, I was um, talking to somebody about ideas that I have for podcasts, um, just kind of more storytelling ideas. And then um, as we were talking, he said, you know, you have a good voice and you're a great talker. Why don't you have a podcast? And I said, I actually have an idea for a podcast. And I had sort of newly moved to L.A. I haven't been here very long. And I said, you know, I really love to talk to sort of heavy hitters in my business and find out their stories. And 
And, uh, you know, I think it would be inspiring to people who are just getting started. I think for me, it would be really interesting because I just love learning about people. And I didn't really know what to expect starting it. And Jenny Daly was my first kind of pilot episode. And she was a friend. And she, of course, is so busy. She had no time to, like, find out what it really was. So I snagged her, luckily. And we did it in uh, in my friend and partner Jim's uh, studio. And Jenny was a great guest. And I was like, I really like this. This is so fun. And then it just kind of kept going. And, and now, yeah, 20 episodes in. And I would love to continue it as long as I can and don't run out of people. But... I don't seem to. And it's cool because now that people listen, they say, you know, I'll get an email saying, hey, so-and-so wants to come on. Or would you consider, you know, someone nominated their boss to come on through like a secret Facebook message? And I know you guys even told me that someone came to you after hearing our podcast with with an idea because they liked you guys so much. And that made me really happy. Yeah, we've had... I th- you know it, it because it is such a close knit community of unscripted um, producers and executives. Uh, when someone like you brings us all together um, to uh, to talk about the trials and tribulations of the business, um, the rumors, the um, the the you know the things that we love about the business. Um, it's it's like a beacon, you know. It's like I think to have um, uh, a voice um, that represents us and the conversations that occur behind the scenes um, uh, and show those conversations uh, to everybody so that they become shareable and they become, you know, I, I haven't listened to all of your podcasts, truth be told, but oh uh, because I tend to zero in on the people that I know first, <laughs> right, of you know, course, and right. I'm like, like oh my gosh, say? Dwight yeah. and Michael, like, what did they say? And then you get into it and you kind of see these parallel worlds emerge um, their experiences and my experiences and you start to see these common connectors that um, typically in passing when you're passing through like Viacom on your way to a pitch (laughs) meeting and they're walking out you don't get to have those conversations so for you to be able to unpack um, the stories of our industry uh, on a weekly basis and do so in such an insightful way. It's it's a real blessing, I think, to us and the industry at large. And, and so, thank you for that. Wow, thank you. That's that's um, really nice. You're welcome. <laughs> Is there something? Um, I, I you know, look. There's the giving, and then there's the receiving of this podcast, right? Um, meaning, I feel like you are giving to the rest of us every time you interview somebody, whether it's a an, an attorney, or a different <laughs> side of the business that's less less expected, a showrunner. I just saw Eddie Schmidt walk out of here. Uh, or and I have Lisa Rinna coming Lisa in after Rinna me, coming in. a reality star. These are all different facets yeah. of the same jewel, shall yeah. we say. Um, you're giving that to us. What are you receiving in return from these people that you interview? What, what, what themes have emerged across all these interviews? What have you learned? That's such a good question. Um, and actually, it's funny that you ask it because I'm asking a friend of mine to transcribe the podcast because I notoriously have a terrible memory. And... Um, and so I want to be able to have sort of a record of all of this, whether it turns into a book or something later, because I want to be able to pull out those themes because I do think there are common things. And, you know, look, I also I get to choose who I have on. Right. So I'm not just randomly picking people. And, you know, I need a good talker. I want someone who's had experience that I think is going to be interesting to me and to the audience. So um, I'm already sort of by product of process of elimination, you know, picking the best people I think are going to be great. And so far, I haven't been disappointed. Um, So what I get, you know, is sort of like you said, the shared experience of like, there's a lot of commonalities. Um, Everybody has a sort of different journey. I mean, I haven't, you know, no one that I've interviewed has paralleled mine exactly, but there's definitely been pieces and places where we've intersected or missed each other. Or, you know, I come from a news background. And I think, you know, Eric Evangelista is one that I did. He comes from a similar background, and um, we kind of bonded over that. So, you know, and then obviously I like to interview people that I've worked with before because we have a comfort level, and, you know, it, it puts me at ease, and I think it puts them at ease that we know each other. But I've also interviewed people that I've met for the first time when they walk in, and that's a different kind of energy. And, you know, that that's it been interesting, too, because it's sort of an instant intimacy when you're sitting here. And it's not like I'm talking about your childhood and your, it's not a therapy session. But, you know, we're, I'm sort of asking you to open up about your life in certain ways. So, How's everybody feeling about the industry right now? Um, 
It's interesting. You know, look, I do think I'm going to be honest about this. And I think that you guys in particular, you and Mike, were very honest. Um, and I loved that. And I told you that. And, you know, we were kind of joking about maybe too honest. But I don't think you've had any repercussions so far. Um, so I far. think that people filter a lot on this um, because they do know that other people in the industry listen. And I wish that wasn't so, but I get it. And to be perfectly honest, I probably filter as well. Um, you know, when I get into edit them and I don't do a lot of editing, sometimes I'll edit out if I say something super harsh, not about a particular individual, but if I feel like, oh, shit, you know, if a network person hears this, they're going to be like, she's so jaded. And, you know, I don't want to come off as negative because, you know, I'm not negative, but we, it's hard because I think that your question, which is the state of the industry right now or how people are feeling is. Um, on the one hand, I think there's an excitement because it's sort of wide open in terms of like all of the places that we can go that weren't available to us, you know, even three years ago in terms of streaming. And, you know, now YouTube's doing original stuff and there's sort of like all of these other avenues that we never had before. But at the same time, you know, the traditional networks are really tightening the belts and chasing the hits because there hasn't been a really bona fide hit for a long time. And um, people that want to go. You know, a lot of the people that I interview have specific brands or specific types of shows that they do. Like you guys are way more diverse. But what happens when you sort of are really good at one thing is you get hired to be really good at that one thing. And that keeps the lights on. So to be able to then diverge from that and want to do something different, if you've only done serious stuff and now you want to do comedy and a network's like, well, you're not none of the comedy people. So those types of things, I think um, companies or people on our side are are struggling with a little bit because networks and are afraid to take chances, right? So it's better to go with the known horse. And unless you've got a really buttoned up package that is undeniable, that's going to sell it through no matter what the genre, they are going to be scared to to say yes. So I think that, um, you know, it's not really a bad time or a great time. I think it's just sort of a confusing time right mm -hmm. now. That's my feeling. That's a, I mean, uh, that feels distilled down into the single word of confusing feels ex it's exactly how I feel sometimes, you know, in this business. And I find that there is this kind of confounding quality to uh, the um, to folks uh, approach to that. You could hack the system years ago, right? You know, we're going in and out of uh, network meetings and, we're like, that was, a, this is a no brainer for them, right? you know, and, and then it's a pass and then it's a pass and then it's a pass. We're putting these great packages together and then it's a pass and then it's a pass. And then somebody makes an offer and it's like, how the hell does that make sense for them? Uh, and so I would, confusing is a great word for it. Um, is there anything that you're kind of seeing from these interviews from this podcast that is emerging to you as a way to poke through the confusion, as a way to find clarity amidst the chaos, so to speak? No. <laughs> mm. I wish I had a better answer. Not really. I mean, I think the common thread is a passion, and I always say that, and it's super cheesy, but it's like if you can't, if this isn't going to get you out of bed in the morning, then just do something else because it is, it can beat you down, you know, in a lot of ways. So if you don't have that sort of desire and passion to do what we're doing, and I think that is what peeps, keeps these people going, then forget it. Just hang it up and do something else. Go, you know, make money, real money. Uh, and then the second thing is that, um, you know, just don't get, don't get beat down by it. So in other words, um, cut through the clutter by doing the projects that you're passionate about. Yeah. And that's the only way, you know, because if you go chasing, like, actually, I think Dwight and Michael said it in their podcast that, you know, when all the sort of redneck stuff was happening, they're like, we should be doing that because that's what's selling. And, you know, they did it and they packaged some stuff and we hate this. You know, this is not us and it doesn't feel organic. And I think that's where, you know, unless you're a factory and truly all you care about is selling shows, then that's fine. I mean, look, there's, you know, a lot of successful businesses built on that, but um, but I think, you know, and especially in my career now and where I where I've been, which was sort of, you know, as long as I can sell it, I'll do it to now where I really just want to do projects that I love. Um, I think that's going to be where what cuts through, because I think that networks actually do respond to that. So you talk about <clears throat> um, passion and you said, I don't want to be cheesy, but um, I just think that's exactly right. You know, Um I think that the most impressive people in our business are those who are passionate. I think there are people who are, aren't passionate, 
who are just kind of slogging through and um and I think those people are being excised from our industry uh and appropriately so right we are in a passion business at at our core we um we're doing this, uh, depending on who you are, because there's some degree of artistry present, right? Some yeah, degree, whether it's two percent, one percent, fifty percent, seventy-five percent, who knows, right? Right. Well, it depends on the project. Yeah. yeah, but artistry comes from pain and passion, right? Yeah. Um. So, uh, I I, I love that statement. I think it's a, a, a spot-on statement to cut through the chaos and the clutter and the confusion of it all. Come back to your passion. That is what uh, will help us all emerge. Uh, successful in life whether we're financially successful or we're just happy people yeah if we follow our passion then theoretically things should work out right yeah i mean i think and i'll add creatively successful i mean to me what i've always loved about this business is um you know just being able to be creative every day back back in the day before you know we were on our phones all the time i remember i would come out to la and i was working for vh1 and i was doing documentaries and I would go on hikes and I would literally edit my shows on the hikes in my head and I remember even being able to step back from that and and say like I'm so lucky that I'm getting to do you know I always wanted to do sort of documentary stuff but I you know wasn't really the trust fund kid that could go out on their own and just finance their own thing so here I was in a construct where I still got to do hour-long shows and have fun and I'm in LA and I'm interviewing all these interesting people and like, what a great fucking job. This yeah. is amazing. And that has always fueled. You know, I always say, like, I don't know what I would do otherwise. Like, I really don't because it's the only thing I like. And even if I hate it sometimes, it's the the creative part is what always brings me back to sort of sanity and to getting excited again. And I am sort of the eternal optimist in a really annoying way. So as bitchy and snarky and jaded and negative as I can be, which I can be all of those things, as you know, I still will always annoyingly hope for the best. And that's probably what why I haven't, you know, just slipped my wrists. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's unpack your journey a little bit. My journey. All right. So uh, I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Where so did you have designs <laughs> on ending up here today? In LA? Yeah, being a producer yeah. in Los Angeles. Like, is this, was this the journey that you envisioned for yourself? And when did that journey begin? Yeah, I always wanted, uh, well, look, to be honest, it was always New York for a really long time. So, up until 10 years ago, New York was the end all be all. Bury me in the sidewalk. I will raise my kids in Manhattan. I mean, I grew up, um, so most of my journey, I grew up 20 minutes outside Manhattan, and that was what I was exposed to. I mean, we went in every weekend, and my mom worked in the city, and, you know, it was my life. And so, when I graduated, um, so I, went to college in upstate New York, and then I went to graduate school right after in Chicago. So right after that, I applied for – I went to Northwestern, which is considered the best school for broadcast journalism. And I thought, you know, I, things have been easy for me up until that point. I was a really good student, and I was Phi Beta Kappa, and, like, you know, when I wanted something, I got it. And, uh, boy, did I get beaten down quickly. Fancy. Oh, it was so bad. So I, I went to live with my parents, and uh, – you know, I had some really good connections. Like my parents had gone to camp with Wolf Blitzer. And like, so I knew all these sort of fancy people at these networks. And I was on my news journey at that point. And I was willing to bring coffee. Like I didn't think I was anything. I mean, I just wanted to get into Manhattan and start working at a network. That was the so, goal. So, so, but you wanted to work in news. In broadcast journalism. In broadcast news. journalism. That's all I knew. I mean, this was... I mean, this is a long time under two. This is yeah, a long time. Yeah, but how does that begin, broadcast journalism? So that's what. So in, like, why broadcast okay, journalism good in question. particular? Yeah. So I was. So my dad, who was a very big influence in my life and still is, he was the editor of his high school paper. So I became the news editor of my high school paper. So I was always a writer, and that was sort of my my passion. I was a good writer. I still think I'm a good writer. And uh, I agree. Thank you. And then I went to. Um, and then so, I always, but I had a personality, and I think. Even in my high school yearbook, it was something like, you know, I want to be the next Oprah. Or people said I was, I don't know, because I was always sort of gregarious. And I guess the interviewer in me even then was like, you know, I want to do that. But there was no sort of enter entertainment would have definitely been my path back then if there was such a thing. To me, broadcast journalism and, you know, 60 Minutes, that was sort of the brass ring. And that was what my trajectory. I mean, I didn't really want to go into local news. Um, I'm glad I did in certain ways, but that was what was available. So when I went to Northwestern, um, we got to be on air for an actual station for our last semester. So I was the Washington correspondent for a news station in Vermont. And I was horrible, first of all. I mean, I was it's 
those tapes are somewhere deep in the in the basement, but it's pretty laughable, you know, and, and I was, um, but I knew I was good at telling people what to do. Like, I knew that I was bossy. I'm an oldest child, I, you know, that I could, um, I was always sort of managing everything even while I was on air. So the goal was not to be a reporter. Um, it was to be a producer. So I, um, so I applied to Northwestern to do that because I didn't know any other avenue. Now, I would not suggest to anyone to do that now because I paid to basically do what I could have done in an internship or in an entry-level job. But it did land me my first job in Bangor, Maine, um, in market number 155. Um, my journalism professor, I was I was waitressing. I was Like I said, I couldn't, couldn't get arrested in Manhattan. I was waitressing just to, you know, pay my parents back for all they did for me. And um, and my, you know, sleeping, it was like the night shift, so I was sleeping. I mean, I was like, I was borderline depressed because I was just like, this is just really not working out the way I thought it would be. Sidebar. Yeah. I was also borderline <laughs> depressed when I lived in Maine. <laughs> I coached lacrosse before I got oh, into the... Oh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> did a semester up at Colby College in Maine. Right. Left like 70 degree weather <laughs> yeah. in Philadelphia. Random, like December 28th, whatever. It was like 70. It was amazing. <laughs> I got up to Maine and didn't see the ground for like six months. Yeah, it's really cold. So this it's was even terrible. before I got to Maine because I was not yet there. I hadn't gotten my first job yet. I was, you know, just sort of languishing. And my journalism professor called me and he's like, get your ass out of bed. I have a job. There's a job available at WABI. I think that was WBAI. Oh, God. I hope Don Colson's not listening. Um, and uh, they're looking for a producer. And um, I... Went up, I interviewed, and I got the job. I moved, you know, girl, Jewish girl from new suburbs in New York, goes to the middle of nowhere. It was like literally northern exposure. And I remember my first day on the job, I was producing the 6 and 11 News. I was 22. My news director says to me, or the guy under my news director says, leave all your ethics you learned in journalism school at the door. <laughs> and that was my initiation. And, I mean, this was literally, we had no computers. We hand wrote the rundown. Um, I worked with some of the most amazing people that year. And I always say, like, to the kids, you know, go. I learned everything. So I was, so I went as a producer, but I also did on air reporting. I also hosted some stuff on air. I also ran the teleprompter. I also left during the weather segment at 1120 at night to start all the cars of all of the talent and the producers so that it was so cold. Once the, once the show ended, we would be warm in our cars. So, you know, there was sort of no job beneath me. And I really, looking back, I always say that I wish I had stayed longer. I was so ambitious and I wanted to get to New York so badly. And that was my path. So I stayed literally to the day my kind of year contract, I left the day it was up. And I do regret it because I think that I could have really developed my skills more. And I made a huge leap. I went to Baltimore, which was market 50 something I think so it was like in the in the broadcast news market that was you know we had computers it was like instant message you know it was way different than what I was used to in small town Bangor and um and it was difficult actually because I was you know um sort of like the big shit in Bangor very little fish in a small big fish in a small pond and in Baltimore I wasn't and I had to get up to speed really quickly and I did also make some good friends and I actually switched stations there. I went to the, uh, I started the Fox affiliate and then went to the NBC affiliate there. So I was there almost three years. Um, you know, but again, it was, I got to get to New York. I got to get to New York. So I finally got to New York. And like, this is the part of my resume that I usually hide because my first job, and this is how badly I wanted to do New York, was at Fox News Channel. They were, <laughs> I know, and you know me and my politics, which is why it's kind of funny. This was, they hadn't even launched yet. And, um, and I, and I was dying to move. And I went in and I and I helped launch the channel. Wow. <laughs> but I will say that was like the first year they were really trying to be fair and balanced, even though that was obviously a joke quite quickly. Well, you had already thrown your ethics out. Exactly. That had, <laughs> that had long ended. So I was like, oh, I'm a Republican. Sure. No, I, I didn't want to, but I definitely ignored some of the signs I saw coming. But again, some of my closest friends are from those years. And ironically, most of us are liberal and, you know, so not that sort of hardcore um, type, but it was great experience because I we worked on the newsreel and they did updates on the top and the bottom of every hour, and I managed about ten different writers, and I was like literally a slave driver. And I mean, we used to laugh, but it was talk. It was the most intense envir environment. I mean, news is always intense when you have a live show every day, and so 
I never really, I think I realized early on that while it suited my personality because I'm very type A and I'm really good under pressure, it also was going to be my demise Mm. and I would die of a heart attack or an ulcer and that I just didn't have the constitution to do it. And we, we, (laughs) you know, um, we, this, this little baby industry, uh, sub industry, sub genre, whatever it's called, reality unscripted, you know, which we should talk about that too. Why do we not know what to call ourselves? (laughs) I know. Um, uh, we all come from different walks of life. And I found that folks that have worked in news are, they, it's like they, no matter how old they are, they roll in like, a, you know, at the <laughs> looking back on an intense career, like they're a 75-year-old dude who just like, you know. It's like being a vet. Yeah, it's crazy. It and they come in and they're like, it was, it was intense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm just glad to be doing dating shows now. <laughs> totally. Uh, it is. We're like, well, like members of like the VA or something. Yeah. I as mean, opposed to somebody that just was like, well, I worked yeah. at William Morris totally. uh, in the mailroom. That and mail then I, was tough. Yeah. Yeah. And those people t- have their own skills, of course. <laughs> right. And but when look, the shit hits the fan, I want to be with the news person. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we certainly aren't um, polished in terms of uh, relationship dynamics and, you know, kissing up and all of that good stuff that you learn in the mailroom and, and on your way up in the agency. But you certainly learn how to work. You certainly had to learn how to write, how to work under deadline, um, how to put together things quickly. You know, and that actually served me well later, way later on with certain projects that had to be done under certain time constraints that normally wouldn't be. So, and actually in the bunker with news people, and we were like, we got this. You know, and so yeah. it is like I don't regret any of it. Like I couldn't wait to get out. Because where did, I, where did what was your last job in news? Okay. And, and what was your segue into great question? So I left Fox to do a documentary with my sister, which I, I really never talk about because it was so short lived and ended up getting the funding pulled last minute. So it's not really a story worth telling. But I knew that I always wanted to do long form, you know, and, and whatever that meant. And that was something that I had felt passionate about. And it was really fun, as you know, to work with my sister just for a short time. And she has kind of the nonprofit background and the do good. And she still does that. So she's she's the good one. Um, and then is this the sister? This is married to the rabbi. Yeah. That, and the, she, she was the one that you did the radio shows with back in the yes, day. Yes. Same sister. Only okay. one. Only one. Got yeah, it. yeah. So she uh, and she just we just wanted to work together. It was super fun. So, But then that kind of gave me the impetus to like, you know, when I was even in Baltimore, I was on the side at my news station was doing long form, you know, the seven minute pieces, like the 60 minutes type, like that was important to me to be able to kind of do that. And even in Maine, I started doing that. And and so I always loved the long form, you know, and I knew that I wanted to tell longer stories. And that was where my passion was. And, um, you know, and, and I knew how to edit and I knew how to do all that stuff. Um, I don't know how to do any of it now because everything changed all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden 20 years ago. Um, but I really loved putting a story together and, and doing the field work, et cetera. So, once I once the documentary fell apart, I went to CBS um, to do a short-lived ma- news magazine show with Brian Gumbel um, called Public Eye with Brian Gumbel. And it really was getting on the Titanic when you knew it was going down. But it was a great opportunity. What do you mean by that? It was a mess. It was— The um, show itself the was show, a mess. The show was a mess. I mean, CBS was amazing, but the show was a mess. I mean, it had some amazing producers, but— I don't really know. I came in late. Like, I came in six months before they canceled it. So I, I don't really know how to articulate what was such a mess about it other than nobody was talking. No, The right hand wasn't talking to the left hand, which was great for me because, you know, what happens a lot, at least, well, even in our industry, is that you have to take a step down sometimes when you go bigger, right? So I had been local news. Now I'm broadcast news. So I'd always been a producer since I was 22. Now I was a senior AP, right, which was like hurt my ego because I've been doing this now, you know, seven years or whatever it was. But the great thing was because no one knew what was going on, I took a story. There was no one above me, and I basically did the story by myself. Now, I also had no fucking idea what I was doing. So I get to Newport Newport Beach, Virginia, um, and I hadn't hired a crew. I mean, literally, I had to— no, Why did no, you have no I'd idea what you were doing? Crew. Sorry, I'd hired a crew, but I hadn't hired a second camera, you know. Wait, wait, never... wait, hold on. Why, why did you have no idea what you were doing after seven years as a producer? Because I had done, again, mostly local news. Yeah. Um, and then those um, field shoots um, were smaller scale. Yes. You know, like, I didn't think 
obviously a broadcast uh, magazine show, there's, oh, I had a correspondent. You have to have one camera on the correspondent, one cat. You know, I was not really on camera except for my stand-ups in the middle of the story. So, you know, and I had nobody working with me. Part of the sort of allure of the fact that I got to do it all myself is I also had no one working it's with me. It's the classic story of like, you're both <laughs> arrogant and uninformed. <laughs> Completely. That's, you nailed it. We just summarized the generation. You, Not ours. Yeah. I was that stupid. Um, and so I, you know, I had done my research and I knew all the people I was interviewing and I had done like I was buttoned up on that end. But logistically, no clue. So that was sort of, you know, head to the fire or feet to the fire, rather. All of it to the fire. And um I, that story never even made air because they canceled it before. So, um, and after that, I actually um, left the country and went to Southeast Asia for five months, and uh, and just you know I was single, um, and I I wasn't like really burnt out. I just I had met I was sort of doing a lot of biking at that time, and I met some really interesting people that had done that. So you just like. Later, I'm out. Yeah. I got well, I was go. inspired by their story. I was an adventurer. I was always up for an adventure. As you could tell from my resume, I didn't stay anywhere very long. Like grass did I didn't let grass grow under my feet. That was kind of my personality for a long time. And so I wanted to explore. And I always loved traveling. And I had traveled, you know, I'd lived at my junior year in Israel and I had traveled to Europe, but Southeast Asia just seemed really incredible. Isn't and there some crazy, like, story? The, the death have, story, near-death yeah, experience or there something? There are a few near-deaths. I was chased in the jungle by men with machetes. Okay, 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 okay. I was. No, 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 no. You can't just move on after that. You gotta, oh, yeah, that. What happened? I was, um, again, arrogant and misinformed, right? So I thought it would be a good idea to go. I was in, like, northern Thailand in the middle of nowhere, and I was really independent. I had, you know, the irony about traveling alone is you're never alone in these places. There's always a million people around. So I was always meeting people and shacking up with strangers. I mean, I look back, it's like, you know, now I have a daughter. It's like if she ever did that, I'd literally just lock her in her room forever. So, and of course, my parents, I was 28, but my parents were beside themselves for five months. It was the whole family was just like, what are you doing? And now looking back, I don't know. Um, you were getting I, chased in the jungle. Yeah, so I stumbled. So I went on a hike by myself, first problem. And then I wandered. Where, into, what country are you in? I was in Thailand in very remote village in the north. And I wandered off. I'd already got my wallet stolen um, by this village. Like, and by the way, I never had this experience. You know, this is toward the end of my travels, and I had I've been really lucky. I mean, really lucky. Um, and so this was like a sort of a bad sign already that I got nothing. I've never gotten stolen. You know, never been in a dicey situation. Sort of all these bad things happen <laughs> over a few days, and I got my wallet stolen, and then, um, and then wandered into this remote village on a hike, and just everyone looked at me like they had never seen a white person, let alone a woman alone. And uh, and as soon as I you know I turned around really quickly and I saw these two men villagers with machetes and not like they already had the machetes on them but they were following bat me back into the woods so I took off and I dove into a pile of um, it was the jungle so I, t- I I dove into a pile of leaves and I hid them again before cell phone I mean there were cell phones I just didn't have one. Um, uh, I hid probably for two hours because I wanted to make sure that I heard them go past me on both ways. And I just, you know, my heart was thumping. I don't even remember how I passed the time. And, I, and I'm and i not very good at being alone with nothing to do. So that was probably torture in itself. And uh, yeah, and I narrowly, I, I look, who knows what oh, would have happened? Maybe nothing. But I definitely didn't want to find out. I have an identical story, except it involves <laughs> mushrooms and I never left my <laughs> living room. So that happened. Oh um, my God. Okay, so That's you're in funny. Southeast Asia. You've got this walkabout yeah. thing going on. Yeah. You're tasting the world. Yeah, it was amazing. It's amazing. Great. So then uh, you decide to come back. Yeah. Okay, so I come back and I've I've stupidly <laughs> now I'm airing all my dirty laundry. I've aired out I, I've emptied out my 401k to do the Southeast Asia trip. So I've got zero. I'm at zero. And my very good friend at the time who's since died, it's really fucking awful. But um he hired me. He was at New York One. Because I was like, help, I'll do any. Like, I didn't want to go back into news, but I, I needed a job. So he hired me just freelance um, to, you know, be able to pay my rent. And uh, and so then I got really lucky because one of my, and this is why you should never make any enemies, one of my bosses from Fox was hired at VH1 to be the news director of this news and docs department. So it literally couldn't have been 
the more perfect job for me because now I wanted to get into the fun stuff, go to VH1, which was doing, you know, long form, but in music and entertainment, it was like a dream come true. It was literally a dream job. I was in heaven. And my boss at the time beneath him, who became my boss, Susan Horowitz, later became my business partner in our own company. She's still one of my closest friends. She was, you know, from day one, I was like, oh my God, we're long lost souls. I mean, we're just to work with someone so closely that you love so much and not be under the time cooker of news. Um, And I mean, I interviewed, you know, Sting, Paul McCartney, Santana, J-Lo. I mean, the list literally, Michael Stipe, I I could literally name like 50. And at the time, you know, I always liked celebrity. It's kind of like the People make fun of me for that because I've always loved, like, pop culture. And when I was little, I would, like, write letters to celebrities. I mean, I was—so to be, like, in the thick of it and, you know, get to go to music festivals all over the country. I mean, I traveled all over the country. It was amazing, to use my favorite word. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing word. Amazing <laughs> is. Um, and long—you know, and then I started doing long form. We started this thing called Rank and, Rank and File. My mm-hmm. friend who lives in L.A. is still a good friend, Rebecca Rankin. She was an on-air reporter. And we started doing these hour-long docs. And that was actually ironically— So you're doing hour-long docs for whom? For VH1. For VH1 yeah, still. Yeah, exactly. It. So it was— it was actually the beginning of the end, ironically, because for some reason we landed at some really seedy shit. Like we did one called Rock and Porn, where I was out here in the valley, like hanging with porn stars for a week. Cool. That was crazy, crazy. I mean, and again, like amazing experience because I got to see what it was like to be in the porn world. Well, and isn't that like, you know, isn't that a for I, when people, you know, you, I go home to Philadelphia and people are like, you know, my like high school friends who are like bricklayers and cops and like they work maybe they'll work in finance or something and they're like you have the most amazing job ever and i'm like it is you know what yeah you're right it is we have no business being in these these you know for whether we work in true crime or we're you know i did i worked with the dea uh for for two years uh going to africa to do like anti-poaching unit shows like amazing what is this? It's social, it's social anthropology. I mean, I always say, like, that's what drew me to the business because I always liked everything. I didn't know what I wanted, and I just wanted everything. So that is actually my favorite part, which is that, you know, I got to do the porn world, and then I went to Medford, Oregon, where a kid was arrested for illegal—that was back in, with Napstar, and he was illegally downloading files off the Internet. I went to his trial. Like, it was—and also, like, I got to see Oregon, which was— incredibly beautiful. I went to the middle Athens, Georgia, because Michael Stipe was involved in from REM was involved in, you know, community organizing there. And I got to do like a local community story. And I love the South, that part of the South. And that was incredible. And so it really was social anthropology. And that actually really even grew more after I left VH1 because um, I got to do some incredible things. But that was um, a fantastic job and taught me how to how to, you know, really do long long form because I was writing, I was producing, I was directing, I was in the edit bay, you know, supervising that. So that's where I sort of learned soup to nuts how to do to do long form. But the problem was I wasn't making enough money and I was living in New York and my boss wouldn't give me a raise even though he loved me. And of course, only when I left did he offer to match the offer, which really annoys me till this day, um, because I would have stayed. However, there was also, you know, I was getting notes back on cuts going show more nipple. And it was like, you know, the feminist in me was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, this is getting... Why do we uh, have to obscure the nipple, nipple at all? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> let, her, let it rain, right. Oh, wait, you were going the opposite. Yeah, yeah exactly. Got it, yeah. got it. No, but it was just like, a, it was another one I did called Sex and Sex and Something. Like, it was a lot of, we were in that theme, which, again, it just started to feel like, oh, what am I doing? Yeah. So I was sort of getting, like, creatively frustrated. And then I sort of landed into what seemed like the next perfect job, which was doing everything I was doing, long-form doc stuff, but at Oxygen for the advocacy unit. So this is funny now, knowing Oxygen as Oxygen today. But back then, we had this very noble vision to empower girls and women to get into leadership. And my boss at the time was Cheryl Mills, who people might know because she was in the White House as Clinton's chief counsel and then went to become chief of staff for Hillary at the State Department. So she's really this unbelievable, unbelievably smart, accomplished woman. But my advice is don't go work for a lawyer because it's a very different beast. And while she's literally probably the smartest person I've ever met, you know, trying to get someone 
like that to understand the way TV works was a challenge. I, I agree. I think, you know, it's uh, look, there are exceptions to every rule, of course. Um, however, the notion of being uh, of uh, avoiding risk, ensuring that you build a system that is three weeks of interview prep. Right. <laughs> for one interview. Right. I mean, you, you know, we do stuff an hour before and let it fly. Oh, yeah. And we're also we invite risk, you know, exactly. in order for That's us to be successful. Right. Yeah. Right. To me, it's like over prep is the death of any show. We would over prep it so much where it sucked the life out of it. So it felt very rote. And very boring. So while I got to interview, you know, we did uh, Gloria Steinem, which is still one of the highlights of my life, and uh, Diane Sawyer and um, um, Ann Richardson, some really, like, incredibly accomplished women. The content was, like, right up my alley. It was called – it was a stock series called Who Do You Think You Are? And we got to spend, I mean, you know, six months on one of them. It was, like, so amazing. I actually came out to L.A. for four months to to do editing for one – I can't remember which one. But um, – it was a dream content-wise, but the moral of that story, and money-wise, by the way, because it was a huge raise from what I was making, but the moral of that story is if you don't like the people you're working with, your job sucks. Mm. I mean, to me, that's everything. And that will win out for me over money, over content even, although that's really important. But the, but but I didn't – it was all women. They had all come from the White House and didn't know TV and then mix in a few TV people that were out of their fucking minds. So it was sort of a recipe. Like, I was kind of miserable. How long were you there? I was there about a year and a half. I always say I was the monkey on the tree because they kept cutting. Yes. It was like they started with like 800 people. And by the time I left, there was like 150. So I just kept going. As soon as that ended and Cheryl's department got dissolved, I went to work for the Jarrett's in the music department there. And that's how I met Seth and Julie, who I love, and, uh, and did some doc stuff for them, a really fun show called... Um, Men We Love, I think, Kira Sedgwick hosted it, something like that, really cute. But then eventually it was only so many more branches, and, like, I, you know, they brought me in, and I was like, I get it. So then I went, was able to go back to VH1. Cool. Um, and then— So VH—so so Oxygen was bookended by VH1. VH1, I think, only for six months, and then the sort of the Philly story of the 13 years that followed was that— that was when, um, you know, reality was booming. This was like early 2000, like 2002. And I don't know if you remember, there was a show called Trading Spaces. Of course. Yeah. So I was really into interior design. It was always exciting to me. And then that, I saw that show. It was like, oh, my God, I need to do that show. I want to go produce that show. I looked up who did it. It was Banyan Productions. They were in Philly. My sister just so happened to be in her first job in Philly working for Johnson & Johnson. She just gotten out of business school. And I was already, like, so adept at subletting my apartment because I'd done it for Asia and everything. I was like, I'll just sublet my place. And, well, actually, no, sorry. I'll just go, vi- I'll just go do an informational interview with Banyan and see if I could go work on that show. I'm yeah. going to work on that show. So I go down there. I remember this, this is such my sliding doors moment of, like, how your life changes because it was a Friday afternoon. It was a beautiful day. I took my sister's bike, and I was in your Philly, so, mm-hmm. we, so you relate. I was, I was biking around the art museum, which is where she lived. And it was like the last thing I wanted to do was break up this incredible day and go interview for something that's probably never going to happen. It was more of a general, right? So I almost called to cancel because I was like, what am I doing? I'm not going to live in Philly. I'm not going to probably get a job on that show. So like, what what am I doing? So I didn't cancel because I don't like to do that. And I went and um, and I was like, so with Trading Spaces, huh? They're like, yeah, yeah, we're booked on that. But we have this pilot and it's called 48 Hour Wedding and it's a, it's a hybrid between it starts as a game show and then it becomes a doc a doc follow show so the game show is three couples like newlywed style whoever wins then has 48 hours in real time to do their wedding and it was talk about reality it was fucking 48 hours of no sleep and so six weeks it was six weeks so they were like it's six weeks but if it went to series you know would you continue would you consider moving and no offense but i was like uh to philly (laughs) (laughs) not gonna happen like offense taken exactly and look my dad was from philly i mean i knew philly it wasn't far into my world yeah but i just want i was a new yorker yeah i was like like, 10 minutes outside the city real city yeah Yeah. and literally i was like will you pay for my my train rides back and forth to new york again arrogant and misinformed so maybe just arrogant so uh (laughs) entitled so I, I took the, the gig, six weeks, and I stayed with my sister. I thought it was perfect. I sublet my apartment, and I'm going to—I um, had credit card debt, you know, typical stupid single woman. And so um, it was great. So I lived with her, and I, and, uh, and I loved—well, that gig was cr- literally worked me to my bone. It was crazy. That's where I met Chris Doe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was my boss, actually, and we bonded, even though it was a crazy experience. 
But then I found myself kind of loving Philly. Mm -hmm. And I always say my shoulders came down because I had been in New York, you know, running around. I, you know, all my friends were there. And especially with VH1, I always had like an exciting concert to go to or just an amazing. So, you know, but I was starting to slow down and I was in my early 30s and I wanted to get married and have a kid. And like all those things were definitely I wasn't one of those like, oh, I forgot to get married. Like, no, it was really important to me. And I was like, I had the three month relationship, three month relationship, you know, and it was kind of like I was in Philly and it was just a different pace. And I saw what money could buy. And I'm seeing my little tiny apartment in New York. In Philly, I could get a huge loft apartment with totally. skylights and a you know gourmet kitchen. I'm like, I kind of like this. And like, I don't feel the need to be out every night here. And like, the guys here seem to like really want a relationship. And like, what's this? I like this. And my sisters, my best friend was there. So I ended up staying. I um, got a place, which was on 13th Street. And I ended up at, was with Banyan for a few years, jumping around different things. And it was a great place to be. And I loved it. And then... Um, but always had the fire in my belly to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And I then decided to start my own company and hooked up with Susan from VH1. And we did that for about two years. And look, I don't need to talk to you about starting your own company and and very arrogant and very misinformed. Um, it was an amazing experience, but we had no money, no investors, nothing. And that's not really realistic for starting and a company. And you're in Philly. Well, I was commuting to New York. So oh. that was really what broke the camel's back because it was unsustainable. Yes. And, you know, it was what it was great for were the relationships. So that's where I really started to get heavily into development, which I had never done before. And I had all these ideas. And that was really why I left Banyan to do it. And Susan had all these ideas. And we wanted to make them. We wanted to do these shows. And, you know, we had so much fun collaborating. And she's, till this day, one of my closest friends. And just creative minds. But I think I even said this to you guys on their podcast, Susan, on your podcast. Still in the business? No, she's a realtor, which will be my next job. Well, that, isn't that everybody? Like so many people. And she's I, super successful. Yeah. I'm like, you should have been doing this. It's perfect for you. And she's yes. a real people person. Yes. But a lot of the same skills, ironically, you know. And so um, that was really what taught me development. And that gave me the base of my relationships. So that when I went to stage three, which is where I ended up for almost eight years in Philly, that was like my bulk of my career in Philly. I had, you know, the development experience, we had done a few series, and I had the relationships. Um, So I was kind of a known entity, even though, um, you know, we were small shop, really small. So um, the stage three thing was great because I got married and my husband had two stepkids. So I was basically chained to Philly till the kids got out of high school. So going back to your very original question of whether L.A. was always in my plan, it started to be in my plan because I'd always come back and forth for work since, you know, I started VH1. But it wasn't really a reality because I knew that these kids were keeping me in Philly. And that was fine. I really enjoyed our life there. And we lived in Balakimo, where you're from, a very lovely suburb. And our life was very easy and designed in a way that, you know, even when I had my kid, um, you know, it was a very friendly environment at work where I could, you know, um, work from home. Carly. Carly. Nine-year-old Carly. And, you know, I, I was... I felt like I raised her. Like, I felt like I wasn't in some cutthroat environment where sure. I was in the edit bay till three in the morning. I was done with that. Yes. And so it was really conducive to that life and having a family and still having a really good career. And, like, I built the company. I mean, we had no company. It was part of a company called Center City Film and Video, which was a very successful production house, but they had no original programming. So I kind of built it from the ground up, and I'm really proud of what I did there. But it definitely reached a point, and again— now that you have my whole history, you know that I barely stayed in any job longer than two years. So to stay somewhere almost for eight years shows how great it was. And again, again, going back to the social anthropology part, we did so many different kinds of shows that it was never boring. I mean, every day felt like a new day. So, what are you most proud of from that time at that at at that company at that period of your life? I think probably. You know, I'm proud in a macro way of building it from nothing. And I and I really not that I did it alone. I didn't, but. I had the tools and the know-how and the relationships to be able to do what they couldn't do. So I'm really proud of that. But I think on a micro level, um, I'm really proud of a show we did called Farm Kings. A colleague of mine sent me the cover of a magazine, a a Pittsburgh magazine, with these four hot guys with their shirts off. And it was like a farming family named the Kings. And I read the art, and he literally was like, anything here? I'm like, something's here already. I need to find out who these guys are. I read this article. It's eight brothers. 
And I'm like, there's more of them? Oh, my God. And, you know, each one's hotter than the next. And then, you know, it starts to get creepy because then they get younger. But um, but the older ones, you know, and and I thought, like, this is a cool, this is cool. They're like, they were born in the farm, literally, and they're trying to um, make farming, you know, cool again in a way. And, like, it was seemed very sort of of the time. This was about five or six years ago because we were learning about where our food came from. And, you know, it sort of felt like there was a really important social action message there, but in a way that could be in a TLC show with just a big family, mama at the top, the parent, it was really interesting, actually. The parents had gotten divorced, and the father had a competing farm, mm. and it was a lot of bad blood. So that would have been an interesting show, too, but not one that these guys wanted to do. Right. So there was this incredible matriarch with the hugest personality at the top, one daughter, who was Biddy, who was amazing, and then all these brothers. And I remember getting on the phone with them. It's like, they could have given a shit. Yes. Like, you know, usually, first of all, you're third or tenth in line because... 50 other production companies have talked to them and then you have to do the courting dance. I didn't have, they had talked to nobody. Nobody knew about them. So that was like, wow, okay, good, check. And then I had to convince them. I said like, let's come out and we'll just shoot a sizzle. We'll just shoot, you know, and so I, it was sort of a, you know, and they're very sort of careful. Joe, who was sort of the, the patriarch, was very careful about what he did. So anyway, long story short, we got it. It was one of those, it was an incredible sizzle reel. I actually didn't produce it, so I can't take credit for it. But, um, it was, you know, one of these where it got the attention of every network. But depending on where it was, most of them wanted to do the father versus the son story. And I'm like, who's going to do the farming story and the family? You know, TLC, it was sort of too male for them, even though I still think it would have succeeded on their air. And like along came GAC, which I had never heard of before. It was part of Scripps, Great American Country, which has more of a name now. And they had never done an original programming show. And Paul Lewis, who's again, when we talked on our podcast about the heroes, he was a hero. He got it. He fell in love with them. He fell in love with everything about it. And we were able to really make that show Great. that we had set out to make. And we did four seasons, which for TV, you know, was about 10 episodes a season. Um, and it became a comedy. And I'm also really, I had no part, you know, I in development, you kind of move on. So I loved the direction they took it in. And uh, and that's a perfect example, that show, of something that I would have never watched because it's not up my alley. But because it was so well done and the characters were so great, it was a great show and I loved it. My whole and it was a family. We all watched that's it as a family. So, so I'm really proud of that. So and and it was it sounds like uh it was one of your favorite experiences because you were allowed to do what you wanted to do. I mean, how rare is that when the network really lets you do the show you want to do and trust you. And yeah. and they were great partners. And you know, we were lucky at Stage 3 to have some amazing partners. I mean, we did a lot of work with um, Bio, which is now LMN, and Peter Tar- Tom Moody was sort of our original hero, and then Peter Tarshis, who took over. I mean, Peter, I'm having breakfast with him on Friday. He's one of my favorite people in the business. He's an executive producer, and he was a real champion of us, and as I understand, still is, mm-hmm. of Stage 3. And and without him, you know, I mean, we did tons of business with him, yeah. and, and I'm grateful for him because he really, he was a partner, essentially, in our company. Yeah. Um, excellent. So, um, now we're in LA. Now we're in LA. <laughs> You've transit. So, so uh, you, you leave stage three. Yeah. What, you know, you, you and I met a couple of years back yeah, as we that. talked at the beginning of the yeah. podcast. Uh, and we had met before that, but then we re-met again in Balakinwood at that random sushi place. And you <laughs> were like, kind of just trying to figure out whether or not you were going to move yeah. west. Um, why move west? You know, I, it really, I've always been ambitious, right? So you hear, you've heard my whole story now. So you know that I always kind of had that ambition to succeed, whatever that means. And I felt like in Philly, I kind of done as much as I could do. I also, and, you know, people might laugh at this, but I had really become averse to the cold. I think the combination of, you know, Rochester undergrad, Chicago grad school, and Bangor, Maine, after, like, I just, I, I was done. And then we had had some really brutal winters. And whereas to the point where I was, like, getting seasonal affective disorder for six months of the year, and that was really taking a toll on me. And I'd come out to L.A., you know, in December, and it'd be sunny, and I would see my mood. So you, you go from seasonal affective disorder to <laughs> ego affective disorder. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Look, it is a fucking trade-off, I will tell you. Yeah. So it really was, when people ask, why did you move, I say work and weather. And and so for me, I figured, you know, I'm in my 40s. I figure I have probably another 10 to 15 good years left in me to really, like, kick ass. And I knew I couldn't do it in Philly. So the older kids are out. And that was it. So my youngest hus- kid was graduating high school. So I kind of, that was in June. And then I brought it up to my husband in January. I said, look. It was like sort of dawned on me. Yeah. Like, we can go. We can go. 
we don't have to be here. Now, my husband's a Philly guy, like Philly, Philly. Yeah. Born and raised. He's my yeah. people. He's your people. Eagles, Phillies, the whole thing. Eagles. So, Eagles. Um, so I, it took a lot of convincing and a lot of conversations, six months of conversations. And he finally, I think because of all the work I put in on the step, uh, stepmother front for all those years, I think it was finally my turn, you know, and yeah. he thought, and he's always been super supportive of my career. And he, he's, he's in a, in a business where he can, he can just get yeah. up and go. Well, he's a lawyer and he owns part of his firm. So he works from home now. I mean, he, look, he's had a lot of trade-offs, um, and I'm super appreciative of him and what he's done for me because there's nothing really here for him other than golf every day, which is a lot. So you better thank me, Brian. Um, but other than that, you know, it's really take. I mean, he does a lot of traveling, so he was doing that from Philly anyway. So that's just from L.A., so it doesn't really matter. But in terms of, look, it's super different. I mean, it's really, really, it's been a huge adjustment. I've been here almost a year. I'm still not used to it, even though I've spent a ton of time here living here. What's the biggest surprise to you? I would say, honestly, um, and I know this isn't going to be popular, but I sort of coined the phrase in the shower the other day. I think L.A. is a lot of snakes and flakes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I've always been a trusting person. Um, at stage three, it was kind of like a family. I never had to watch my back. I never thought of people, you know, have ulterior motives or whatever. And so, and I knew that that was sort of the cliche of L.A., but I, you know, in our industry, especially, you know, one of the reasons that I love working with you guys is that, like, you're pe- you're my people, you yeah. know. And so I've really ne- been navigating those waters in terms yeah. of, you know, uh, we call it the L.A. yes, no, where, yeah. like, people are very afraid to say no here. So they just say yes, even though they mean no. Sure. And so I don't like knowing not knowing where people are coming from. That's like a thing for me. Like, I'm okay getting rejected. I'm okay. Like, just tell me where I stand. Yes. So that's, people here are not good at that. Yeah. And then the flake factor, which is just like, I don't think the intentions are bad. I just think people just are into their own little insular worlds yes. and aren't thinking about other people. That's been the biggest difference is the, is people-wise. Yeah. You know, lifestyle-wise, a million times better. And work-wise, professionally. I mean, I've had doors open here that just weren't available to me before, and that's been that was the reason why we came, and it really has happened. It's uh, it's it, I love that snakes and flakes reference. <laughs> you can spread it. I will. I will. Spread, We're gonna spread, spread it right it. now. Wait, yeah. How are we gonna get the Hashtag message out? Hashtag snakes and flakes. <laughs> how could someone find out about this conversation? <laughs> I have no idea. We'll have to figure that out some other time. We should. We should. Um, uh, <laughs> but I do agree that snakes and flakes thing. I would actually. <laughs> I don't think it's a 50-50. I think it's much more flaky than it is snaky. Okay, good. Uh, that which, makes you feel better. <laughs> right? It's At least there's not yeah, like a, good. You know, I'll take flaky an underlying you know, meanness about right, it. I think right. it's just like a fundamental kind of like um, there's a laziness <laughs> right. uh, to everyone and yeah. everything. And there's also an overwhelm, I think. There's so many people. Right. And like That's you go to point. Whole Foods right. and you <laughs> see 15 people that you saw in the offices of Viacom. You pitched them. They pitched <laughs> you. Funny. Whatever. Right. And That's you're funny. like. It's hard not to be flaky when you have that level of overwhelm coming at you from all different angles, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is also, you know, Philadelphia, you can walk into your, you can like pop into your neighbor, right? L.A., yeah. you pop into your neighbor, they're like, who is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. like pissed off at you. Yeah, that surprised me. I thought people would be friendlier here. And yeah. Philly, I, I hate to tell you, like, not the friendliest place. The suburbs are. Suburbs. Philly is hardcore. Like, you know, yeah. Eagles fan. I mean, forget it. I did not enjoy that part of Philly. And New Yorkers actually are very nice, which people don't think. They're just in a rush. Right. So here I thought people would be friendlier. But now I understand when you're sitting in traffic for hours on end why you would be in a pissed off mood. Because I'm in a pissed off <laughs> it's mood. It's weird, yeah, right? I'm it's like, like, fuck you. Suppose, everyone just should be happy. But they're like, why are you here right now? No, I do not want Jehovah's Witness. I'm like, I'm not Jehovah's Witness. I'm your neighbor. I've lived next to you for eight years. Go away. Um, So... You know, this is a uh, uh, one of the standard practices in your podcast is oh. to ask some questions yes. at the end of the podcast. Yes. So let's get into that. Um, we're going to start with the negative and then kind of ze- <laughs> zero in on the positive. But what is your biggest regret in your career? Well, okay, one regret. I don't know if it's my career, but I wish I had taken off time after grad school either after college or after grad school, to go do what I did when I was 28. You know, go to New Zealand or go traveling. I mean, I think that Americans don't do that enough. And in fact, I met very few Americans when I was traveling because it's not in our it's not in our psyche to go explore. And it is in every other country, but not here. And I think especially when you're young, go do it. Like, really. So I regret 
being so laser focused on my goals that I didn't smell the roses more. I mean, even when I was in Southeast Asia, I always, you know, this sort of sums up my personality. We were on this 15-hour bus ride. Everyone on the bus was sleeping, and I was reading my Lonely Planet Guide trying to plan where I was going to go next. And that's just my personality. I hate it about myself, but it's probably made me really good at a lot of things. Mm. So um, I regret not sort of slowing down and really appreciating. And, you know, same with, like I said, in Bangor. I could have stayed there longer and benefited from it, but I was in such a rush. And I'm you know, I'm still in a rush in a way where I like to get things done, and I'm productive and um, not so great always staying present. So in terms of my career— I guess in certain ways I regretted going to Oxygen because I did have such a great gig at VH1. I I wish probably I had gone into my boss with the offer and given him the opportunity to match it. I wasn't savvy enough back then to do that and use it as leverage. I definitely would know to do that now. Um, but who knows, you know, if the content would have gone on, I would have been miserable. So I don't career-wise really have any regrets, you know, that are like, oh, my wish, you know, but maybe those are the little, the little things. So – Biggest or proudest accomplishment? Well, everyone who I ask always says, of course, their family, right? And I go, no, 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 professionals. So I feel like I have to say my family um, first because that's definitely true. Um, And then professionally, um, you know, well, I brought up the Farm King story on a micro level at at stage three. I think that, um, you know, I guess always being employable, you know, I've always, I've never really um, been unemployed, you know, and and um, part of that's because I'm a hustler and I make sure I'm not unemployed. But I always have tried to pivot to, you know, where things are going and, and make, you know, and I think like pivot my skills that way to be able to be employable. And, um, you know, and I guess building up stage three, I'm really, really proud of that. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but that employ- employable thing is, it's interesting because it is <clears throat> both at odds with your regret. Because you've built a, <laughs> totally. the reason why you've been employable is because you've kept your foot on the gas pedal for so long. Right. So your proudest accomplishment True. is at odds biggest with regret. your biggest regret. Which is a, a fascinating, it's it, it's more a reflection of the human condition than it is you, I, I Very I think. good, very good observation. And I will say, sorry, one thing to add to accomplishment, I'm really proud of um, selling, creating, co-creating and selling our show for CBS, um, Case of John Benet Ramsey. It was still such an honor to be a part of it, and um, and it happened in a really organic way. And, and you know, I was here four months and, and didn't expect that to happen, so... I'm really very proud of that. A spectacular accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah, I'm proud spe- of the show. Yeah, and a spectacular career. And um, as we said earlier, as I said earlier, your reputation precedes you. And now that you're on the West Coast with us, girl, um, <laughs> it's just great to be able to see you as often as we get to see you and to work with you and to see this 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 amazing human being who shows up every day passionate and creative and insightful. And I know that, like, as partners on this project that we're working on right now, there's so few people you can call in our business and go, she's going to kill it. She's going to just nail it, right? Or I, I trust her so much to be able to do that. Um, or she trusts me to do that, right? To have that kind of relationship is such a rare thing. And I think that is a true testament to who you are as a human being. And I love you for that reason. Oh, I love you. I'm blown away. Thank you. You're welcome. And so where does it go from here? What does the rest (laughs) of your career look like? What does success mean for you? That was the only question I actually thought of in advance that you might ask that I was going to be that not I wouldn't have an answer. Yeah, because it's a really good it's it's you know, so I guess the good part of me slowing down and being present is I haven't really thought, you know, super big picture about the rest of my career. I I do think that I don't want to just be an employee and I'm not right now, you know, so I want to be a part of something that's going to grow. I'm really into scripted now and I'm super psyched to be able to to do that as well, add that to my repertoire. Um, I don't know a lot about it. It's a new world, but I'm loving the projects that we have right now in that world. I also am, you know, a little dabbling in this this feature world a little bit. Now, I don't want to work on a movie. Let's make that super clear because that works at way too slow pace for me. But just even learning about that business, you know, these are all sort of like tentacles of our business, right? So 
Um, I love sort of expanding the repertoire and where that will lead. I'm really, really passionate about comedy. And, um, you know, in the world that I'm in right now, you know, there's not a ton of comedy. We do have actually two things coming in that are actually intersecting the comedy world. By the way, let's talk about that world. We didn't yeah. finish with the details of where you are right now. Where uh, I so am what, right now. So what is XG? Okay, so I... Um, uh, XG is um, a company run by Jim and Tim Clemente, who are brothers, more brothers. Um, basically, they're both former law enforcement. Both were in the FBI. Tim was a cop. Jim was a former prosecutor. They started the company to bring authenticity to uh, Hollywood. And so that really be, you know, started and still is mainly in the scripted world with you know Quantico and Blindspot and Sleepy Hollow, Secrets L- and Lies. Law enforcement authenticity to e- Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah. So um, – you know, technically, we have this sort of big roster of former law enforcement who are technical advisors on that show so that when someone, you know, it's authentic, it's real, it's not just made up. So that's kind of the the, the genesis of it. And Jim and I met creating and selling a show to LMN years ago called Killer Profile, and we stayed in touch and then created John Bonet together with Laura. Um, and then he brought me on to basically run the content side of the company. So I'm the chief content officer and... Um, you know, all of our projects are kind of in that niche and that brand. But like I said, we are sort of blowing out the margins and trying to expand because obviously we never want to be just in one little box. Um, and just the kinds of people that Jim knows and, as you know, through all of his worlds, and Jim's been successful on his own. He's a writer on Criminal Minds, and he's um, sold many scripted pilots. Um, so he's inter- interacted with tons of interesting people. So Every day, you know, after this, I'm having coffee with, um, I don't even know, I got to look, but some law enforcement, wildly interesting person. And that's my life now. So I am more passionate than ever about what I'm doing because this is something that organically I gravitate toward. I've always loved true crime. I've always been fascinated with, um, you know, real stories. And like the people that we meet and the stories that we hear on a daily basis are so fucking interesting that it's almost mind-blowing and it's overwhelming where there's just so much and it's like how do we sort of filter it all into a way that we can create content out of it because it is, it's a lot. So here you are here at the I top am. rung of the uh, the kind of really the those who validate law enforcement stories throughout Hollywood. You're at the, the top of that game. You've got this, you're, you're a social anthropologist in this world of law enforcement and people who kind of ensure the validity and the authenticity of law enforcement and stories. Uh, and now you're branching off to do comedy and you're branching <laughs> off to do scripted and you're, it just sounds like you've, everything you've set out to achieve, you have achieved. And uh, I think that's a rare quality uh, in, in this world and this life. And you haven't done it uh, because people have handed it to you. You've kicked ass the whole way through. You've, you've, you've slogged through, you've crawled through the glass. <laughs> still crawling, still slogging, right? Well, with all of the passion that you bring to the job and the hard work, uh, may your greatest dreams come true. I think they will. Aww. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you here. for doing this. This was so cool. You're, you're one of the very few people I would let do this because I trust you and, and I knew you'd be, you'd be good at it. Cool. Well, next time uh, I'll... Uh, uh, maybe we'll we'll dig deeper and we'll shit talk more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks. Thanks.